1 Samuel 18 is where we're going to start. Now, I'm not going to read all of the chapters. In a minute, I am going to read chapter 18, and then we're going to, yeah, then you'll see as we go through. Um, but, but just let me, let me um, set the stage quick. Let me give you the, the bird's eye view of what's going to happen in 18 through 20, because I do think there's one theme, there's one message, that all, they're all connected, and so that's why we are, are covering them all in one sermon. If you remember the past several chapters, what we've seen, we've seen Saul is king, but David has been anointed king, and then most recently we saw David defeated Goliath. And what we're going to see is that Saul is going to continue to fall. So we've seen his true colors kind of start to show, and that's going to continue this week. The, the first king of Israel who had forfeited his right to rule by rejecting and disobeying the Lord. Do you remember? He chose to reject the Lord, and the Lord says, okay, you're rejected because you rejected me. And so Saul was removed, the, the Spirit of God was removed from Saul, but he was still occupying the position of king. And so here comes David, who is, who is anointed, who's chosen, who's given the Spirit of God, um, but he's Israel's king in waiting. He, he's not yet been installed as king, and so he's in this awkward position where he's anointed king, but there's still someone as king. So David's waiting for his turn. Uh, last time, we, as I mentioned, we saw Goliath deleted, or defeated um, and, and he sent the Philistines running. And, and so in that scene, everyone, including Saul, was afraid of Goliath. But, but here's this spirit-empowered shepherd boy who, who conquers Goliath. And so what, we, what we've seen, what we're going to see in these chapters, we're going to see David's continual rise. He has the spirit. It's clear to everyone, almost everyone, that he is the anointed one. So he's going to continue to rise and have success. He's going to prove or evidence continually that the Lord is with him. And he is going to be the object of almost everyone's love. Everyone sees, wow, look, this is the leader that we have been given by God. We're even going to see Saul's own children see that. But everyone loves David except for King Saul. He doesn't. He, he doesn't see. He's blind. So as we see David's rise, we're going to see Saul's continue fall. And actually, we're going to see Saul prove himself to be jealous, angry, vengeful, selfish, right? All, all the worst things of of a king are, are coming out of Saul. He proves to be a king that is unfit to rule God's people as God's representative. And so we're going to continue to see that. We're going to see the, the, the worthlessness of Saul as the king of God's people. And so the worthless king that they ask for and they deserve is, and, and well, so what we're going to see is, is the biggest threat. So as, as David is rising, as Saul is falling, the biggest threat to David taking the throne is this king. And so the one king, the worst, worthless king that Israel asks for and the one they actually deserve is the one that only one thing that seems to be preventing them from getting the good king that God has graciously provided for them contrary to what they deserve. You see, so Saul is, is the obstacle in the way, the good king that the Lord will support and protect and ensure that, it, that he will rule his people will be confronted by Saul continually. And, and we see that beginning this week. Well, let me, let me show you the outline first. And then I'll read chapter 18. So, so the outline, we have the jealous, angry, scared king, which is chapter 18. In chapter 19, we're going to see the Lord protects David. He does so in, in some unusual ways. And then lastly, we'll see the faithful friend. Where, where there's a, a focus on the relationship between Jonathan and David. Well, if you turn your Bibles for Samuel 18, I'm actually, actually going to rewind five verses um, and start in 55 of chapter 17. If you remember, that's where we left off. Those are transitions. So I'm going to pick up in 1755. And I'll read through chapter 18. So follow along as I read. Beginning in verse 55 of 1 Samuel 17. 
As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from, the, from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to, ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and he came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here's my eldest daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mehalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke the words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. 
And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So, chapter 18, we, we see a jealous, angry, and a scared king. So, so as I said last time, verses 55 and 58, they follow immediately after the defeat of Goliath, and it's in the discussion that follows that, that Jonathan and David are, are introduced or make acquaintance. And so as soon as David defeats Goliath, Saul says, well, well who is this boy? I, I've promised him a lot of things. Who's his dad? How, ma- how many taxes am I going to be eliminated from receiving because I promised a tax-free life for the one who defeated so he's probably asking, not because he doesn't remember David, but because he recognized that, that this youth had just secured a lot of things from the king. So, so who exactly is this guy? What's his heritage? Who's his father? As we look at this chapter, I want to focus on, on the specific relationships that are mentioned. Okay, so we're going to see three, three specific relationships, or three categories. First, we'll, we'll look at Saul and David. Let's look at their relationship. Then we'll look at Saul's children and David. And then we'll look at all of Israel and David. Okay, so, so first notice Saul and David. We see there in verses 6 through 10, we see Saul's jealousy. Notice verse 6, everyone's returning from battle with the Philistines. David, who, who there's no question, he is the hero. Right? If David doesn't show up, they don't conquer Goliath, and Israel doesn't, doesn't experience victory. So, so David is the clear victor, and so he gets some credit from, from the singing women. Okay? So, so the top 10 that week was all about David. Right? So, so they sing songs saying, hey, Saul killed his thousands, but, but David, he got his ten thousands. Now, they, they probably didn't mean anything ill towards Saul in their song. They're simply celebrating, we experience victory. And David conquered Goliath. And so they're rejoicing and celebrating. But the, the lyrics stick with Saul. He can't take it. It doesn't go over well with him. He's angry. He's angry. He's jealous that this shepherd boy, this, this son of Jesse, would be credited with being stronger and braver and even a better warrior than the king. Now, as readers, we know that's true, right? Saul was not moving towards Goliath. We know that's true. David is better, stronger, braver. But Saul can't take that. And, and he says, what more can he have? They're singing songs about him. Uh, next in, in, the next step is the kingdom itself. Right? A, a little bit of an exaggeration, we might say. But the, the result is from that day on, Saul eyed David. He was jealous, envious. He, he didn't like the recognition that David was receiving. And so the next day, Saul is once again visited by this harmful spirit that, that we've seen previously visit Saul. And, and here he, he visits David, and, or he visits Saul, and David is now back playing the liar, trying to, to soothe the king. And this, this spirit, harmful spirit comes, and Saul throws the spear at David, right, trying to kill him. So, so his anger is coming out in the, in the form of, of attempting to kill him, to pin him to the wall. And, and I want you to notice at the end of verse 11, David evaded him twice. Twice, which means, first time, spear sticks in the wall. David thinks, oh, he missed. He, he must just be crazy. I'm, I'm going to stay here and keep playing because he clearly needs me. Get the spear, give it back to the king, and he throws it again. So two times, David avoids him or eludes the spear. I don't, mean that, I don't think this means that David is crazy, but I think it tells us that David was loyal to the king. He knew, my, my playing this music is, is what calms this king, so I'm not leaving. Even if he tries to kill me two times, I'm staying here 
because I am the, the source of his comfort. And so after Saul fails twice, he then gets tired of David and removes him from his presence and says, well, go be a commander of an army. Go command a thousand of my troops. Now we'll come back to verses 12 through 16, but notice how, how verse 12 begins. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. So not only was Saul jealous of David, but he's also afraid. And he's afraid because David had the Lord on his side. And Saul knows that. He sees it. He recognizes the Lord is with him, and that makes him afraid. So we have a jealous, fearful king who's seeking to kill the one. The one he's afraid of is the one that he knows has God on his side. Do you see that? He knows God is on his side, and he's afraid of him and says, I'm going to kill him even though I recognize that God is with him. And it just shows how far Saul has come. Well, then looking down at verses 17 through 29, after failing to kill David with his own hand, Saul says, okay, my, my aim with the spear is not very good. Let, let's have the Philistines kill him. Why, why should I use my hand when, when I have enemies that could do the job? If you remember, part of the deal for, for David in defeating Goliath was part of the prize that, that the, the victor was to receive was Saul's daughter in marriage, to, to have Saul's daughter. But Saul here doesn't honor that original agreement. Says, okay, yeah, I know I said that, but, but you've got to do something else. Be valiant for me. Go fight the Philistines again for me. He thinks, I'm going to use my daughter to lure him away to fight the Philistines, and he's going to die by their hand, not mine. Notice what he says, fight the Lord's battles. Don't fight my battles. Fight the Lord's battles. Go, go fight for the Lord, and then you can have my daughter. Again, showing the, the jealousy and, and anger with David. Saul is trying to kill David. Now, the one thing I want to mention, the one thing that, that would have altered this entire process, I mean, the one thing that, that would have made a world of difference which is, in fact, the one thing that Saul would not do is simply for Saul to defer to David. Right? That, that's all he had to do. He already recognized that the Lord was with David. He had already been rejected as king. He knew it was only a matter of time before he was deposed. All he had to do was step aside and let David lead God's people. A little bit of humility. That's all it took. Follow the Lord's anointed. That's all Saul had to do. But Saul's sin would not let it happen. He was jealous and angry, and he saw to it that he would kill David, eliminate David. So that, that was Saul and David's relationship. What about Saul's children? Do they view David like their father viewed David? We'll, we'll start first with Michael, which is, which is his daughter. First, we know that, that Michael viewed David differently. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, David loved, or Michael loved David. So, so that's it. So, so Michael loves him. Her dad doesn't, but she doesn't. She, she's happy to be his wife. And so, so Saul ends up, I mean, David, we, as we read, he would go on, he'd defeat, and defeat the Philistines and pay the price that Saul required, and he would win Michael as his wife, and the two would marry. Um, but, 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 but the point I simply want to make is that Michael loved him. Michael loved David. Verse 28, again, Saul could tell that Michael loved him. So, so this was evident. This woman, this daughter of Saul, loved David, but it wasn't just his daughter Michael, notice Jonathan. Jonathan and David, the, the beginning of chapter 18, we see that Jonathan and David share a friendship that's nothing like the, the relationship between Saul and David. Right there in, in verse 1 of chapter 18, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So, so there's these two young men that are knit together upon meeting. Now, as one commentator notes, this was understandable. I mean, think about, think about the similarities, what, what David and Jonathan have in common. Here's what the, the commentator says. It says they were both very courageous and capable young warriors 
who possessed profound faith in the Lord. Both had initiated faith-motivated attacks against militarily superior Philistines. And both of those faith-fueled attacks had resulted in great victories for Israel. You remember Jonathan, his great faith in, in just taking his armor bearer and attacking that garrison of Philistines? So, so here's two men that, that, are, that are of one heart. Right? They, they have great faith in the Lord, and they're mighty warriors, and they've, they've experienced the Lord has used them to give great victory. And so Jonathan is drawn to David, and the two form an uncommon friendship. But it's more than just a friendship, because look at what happens in verse 4. Jonathan takes off all of his royal apparel, all of his, all his, ro- his robe and his sword and his armor. He takes it all off, and he gives it to David. Remember when Saul tried to do that? David said, no, no, I'm not taking it. Right? Here's a difference. Jonathan, the attitude is much different. The setting is much different. Not only does Jonathan love David as a friend, he also recognizes who David is. He acknowledges that David is the Lord's anointed, the next king. He defers to David how different from his father. I mean, we, we can't forget, Jonathan is, is in line to be the next king of Israel. Right? That, that's, he was born into royalty. That was his next step. And remember, Jonathan would have probably made a good king. We've seen that. He's a man of faith who trusts the Lord. We saw he he would be a much better king, it seems, than his father. And certainly part of him wants to be king. We can't say that Jonathan didn't care at all. Certainly part of him wanted to be king. But even so, Jonathan loves David and recognizes that David is the next king. And Jonathan doesn't want to do anything to prevent that. But instead, he wants to ensure, he wants to do all that he can to ensure that David does, in fact, become the next king. And I think, I think that in Jonathan, I think here we see an example of humility, an example of what it looks like to consider the Lord's agenda over our own. I mean, right? Surely Jonathan had plans. Plans on how he was going to be a better king than his dad. And I'm sure he thought that. I'm sure he had great ideas of of how he was going to lead Israel in faithfulness to the Lord. I'm sure that was his heart and his desire. Maybe he had plans of his own sons one day ruling on Israel's throne. So, so, so he has all these plans, but, but in this moment, he says, David, you're the next one. I'm, I'm giving up my right to rule to you. On that, on that day, Jonathan recognized that his will was not the Lord's will. And when he gave David all of his royal apparel, Jonathan was saying to the Lord, thy will be done. And it takes humility to do that. It takes humility to consider the Lord's will over his own. But it wasn't just Michael, it wasn't just Jonathan. Notice verse 16 of 1 Samuel 18. Notice verse 16. All of Israel and Judah and David. Notice that relationship. While Saul stood in fearful all of David, verse 16 says that all Israel and Judah loved David. Do you see that theme? Jonathan loved him, Michael loved him, all of Israel and Judah loved him. For he went out and he came in before them. They, remember, Israel wanted a king that would fight for them. And in David, they see a man who's fighting for them. And they all loved him. And so I think in chapter 18, we see this contrast. Everyone loves David. Everyone sees what's happening with David except for the one man who's standing in his way, Saul. The contrast couldn't be clear. Saul doesn't see what everyone else does. Saul has missed the memo on David. And he would continue to try and eliminate him, which brings us to chapter 19. So the Lord protects David, chapter 19. I'm not going to read this chapter, but I want to draw your attention to the theme of these verses. And to show you the theme, I just want to show you two two specific verses. First, look at verse 1 of chapter 19. So you see there in verse 1 of chapter 19, 
And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. See, that's verse 1. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And so what I want you to notice, every, every translation that I looked at had, had the English words, but Jonathan. So here's this plan. Saul says, we need to kill him. And he's telling his advisor, he's telling his Jonathan, but Jonathan. That's what every English translation that I said, that I looked at, said. And so, so the, the, the point is, Saul wants to kill David, but there's something, or rather someone, who's in the way. And in this case, it's Jonathan who is in the way. And, and he's in the way, and he protects David by speaking sense to his father. So after Jonathan hearing that, he says, wait a minute, Dad, that is crazy. You don't want to kill David. What has he done? He, he actually risked his life for you. He's only helped you in your kingdom. Look at all the victories he's winning. He's only benefited you in your kingdom. I mean, think about it, Dad. You rejoiced when he beat the Goliath, didn't you? Why would you kill him? And Saul, convinced by his son, agrees and says, okay, in fact, I swear to you, I'm never going to kill David. So you see there, the first part of chapter 19, crisis averted. Everything returns back to normal. But then, after that crisis is averted, war with the Philistines takes place again. And again, David is victorious. And again, the Philistines flee. And then a harmful spirit comes upon Saul. And he's back, forgetting his promise, forgetting his oath, attempting to kill David again. And so David runs away. And so the second verse I want you to look at in, verse, or in chapter 19 is verse 11. So there in verse, verse 11... Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning, but Michael. Now your translation, this wasn't, this wasn't all across all of them, but, but the ESV and the NASB both translate but Michael in, in the exact same wording that but Jonathan. Now not every translation is the same, but the, the, the process is the same. Saul wants to kill David, verse 1, but Jonathan stops him. Verse 11, Saul wants to kill David, but Michael stops him. One of Saul's own children, whether Jonathan or Michael, are standing in the way of their dad killing the anointed one of Israel. So in Michael's case, instead of speaking sense to her dad, she probably wouldn't have had a, had a voice with her dad like Jonathan dad did. She just tells David to run away, and then she covers for him when the messengers come. And so crisis averted. The theme, the main idea of this chapter, building off the blindness of Saul in chapter 18, is that Saul can't kill David. He can't do it. Or to put it another way, the Lord is protecting David from Saul. He's keeping him from evil. And he's doing it in these first two instances with Saul's own children. But it's not only the children that the Lord uses to protect Saul in chapter 19. In verses 18 through 24 of chapter 19, we find that the Lord doesn't even need people. So, so, so David runs to Samuel and you think, okay, now he's going to use Samuel to protect him. But that's not the case. The Lord uses something other than a human person to protect. So I want to read verses, just verses 18 through 24 of chapter 19. So in 1 Samuel 19, look at verse 18. I'm going to start and just read through the end of the chapter. So, so he's just fled from Michael. Now David fled and escaped, verse 18, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and he told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went, and they lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they came, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they, that is the messengers, also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and he came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. 
And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and he lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? That's amusing, isn't it? That's an interesting encounter. But, 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 But the theme remains the same. So after neither Jonathan nor Michael can keep Saul off of David's case, David decides to go to Samuel. I'm going to go to the prophet. Maybe he can help. But as we read, Saul doesn't say, oh, he's gone to the man of God. I'm going to leave him alone. No, he sends for him even when he's with Samuel. He's going to send his messengers, and they're going to get David. He wants to eliminate David at all costs. And every time Saul sends messengers, they end up being attacked, I mean, if you call it that, attacked, by the Spirit of God, and they all begin prophesying. Every time, so the first group of messengers... They go, remember they're going to find David, to kill David, and they end up at a worship service in Naoth, and they're hindered from their search for David because of their preoccupation with prophesying. And they forget their task because they, they're, in, they're overpowered or, or the Spirit comes upon them. And so when Saul hears of this, he doesn't think, now, what am I doing? Why am I seeking to kill the Lord's anointed? And he says, okay, more, next group, you're up. Sends a second group, same thing happens. He hears about it again, and again, not questioning his goal or what he's doing, he sends a third group. And surprise, same result. So three dispatches of, of messengers, same thing happens. So it's not to be defeated. Finally, Saul says, fine. And if you want something done, you better do it yourself. If you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself. So Saul makes the trek. And so here we see the spirit being no respecter of persons comes on Saul himself. Only did you notice the Spirit comes on Saul while he's at Ramah. He doesn't even make it to where they are. Before he even gets there, the Spirit comes and he begins prophesying. He prophesies all the way, the whole journey to where they are. And when he gets there, he just joins in with the service, the worship service, the festivities. And so chapter 19 ends with the same question that was asked earlier in 1 Samuel. Is Saul also among the prophets? Do you remember what was first asked? Right, when, when he had been anointed and, they, and, and he had been sent after a, on a donkey chase and, and, and he receives the Spirit. And that's the mark of he's the chosen one. And so there the tone was positive. Is Saul among the prophets? Look at this man. And he, he must be in the work of God. But times have changed here, haven't they? The attitude, the tone, the context is totally different. I, I would say this question in chapter 19 is almost asked as a mockery. Here's a man who set on killing the Lord's anointed, and the Lord is using his own spirit to prevent him from killing his own anointed. Is he among the prophets? No way. Not even close. He couldn't be further from among the prophets. But that closes chapter 19. And I, I, I do want to make one point of application here at 19. And that's simply the, the Lord's protection of David. I mean, I think we see that time after time. The Lord protects him from Saul's murderous threats. And we know the Lord had anointed David. David was going to rule, which meant that David was not going to die prematurely. And he had anointed him. He was going to be the next king, and that plan was not going to be derailed. And so in this sense, David was invincible. And we see in this chapter, the Lord protecting David in some abnormal ways, or, or at least I should say abnormal to what we might expect. And when I say the Lord protecting someone, you, you probably think about, as I do, angels with swords or supernatural blindness or, or other things like that. The Lord protecting mighty and powerful, but in, in, in these first two cases, at least, the Lord simply uses David's relationships with Michael and Jonathan to protect him. He uses ordinary means. Both of these individuals, I would say, in light of this chapter, are 
part of God's sovereign plan to preserve his anointed one. Now, while, while we certainly are not in the same place as David, as the anointed future king of Israel, I do think there's a sense in which we are, a sense in which we can be encouraged by the Lord's protection of David, and here's why. In, in the same way that David was divinely protected until he was able to accomplish all that God had determined for him to do, in the same way, so also the Christian need not fear premature death. I think, I think that's true. In the same way that David was going to be king because the Lord had said, you're going to do this. He wasn't going to be cut off short. And I think that's true for every Christian here today. I mean, in one sense, every death of every Christian is premature in the sense we don't, we don't want it to come. So it is premature in that sense, but it's not premature from God's perspective. No one dies too soon. And that should encourage you. The Christian can claim Davidic protection in the sense that as a Christian, I can be confident that God will keep me here until whatever he has ordained for me to be or do is accomplished. I don't know what that is, but I know that I will accomplish what the Lord has for me to accomplish, and I will not be cut off before that. I mean, my days are numbered. Isn't this how the psalmist speaks? My days are numbered. That number has been determined by the Lord himself, and I need not be anxious or afraid. Parents, this should encourage you about your children. Their days are numbered. Remember as our first child came, thinking, we're going to kill him. We don't know what we're doing. Right? This is comforting. The Lord has numbered his days long before we met him. That doesn't help us. That doesn't lead us to shirk our responsibility, but, but that is great comfort there. And so knowing that, that we are protected by the Lord divinely, we're able to live fully. Not afraid. Live fully for God's purposes, pursuing Lord's purpose. We, we have one life and only one life to live for his sake. And so we should do so boldly, confidently. Regardless of your age, you, you have time left while there's breath in your lungs. Well, let's look finally at chapter 20. Chapter 20, we see a faithful friend. Now, I'm not going to read this ch entire chapter either, but I do want to walk you through the chapter and show you the main idea, which I think is simply to show the significance of this relationship, this friendship between Jonathan and David, and more specifically to highlight the, the role of the covenant. This relationship, it's not just this friendship, it's a covenant that joins these two men together. So, so we, we see in, in verses 1 through 11, David is still on the run. Okay, so he's just a man on the run. So he, he leaves Samuel, and he goes back to Jonathan. And so he goes back to Jonathan, and the two of them devise this plan or this test to see if Saul is in fact out to kill David, because at this point... <clears throat> Jonathan says, no, I don't, I don't think he wants to kill you. I haven't heard anything about it. I know I'm his, I'm his son. He tells me everything. I don't think he's out to kill you. And David says, no, you're wrong. He definitely is. And then Jonathan says, well, I'll do whatever you say. What, what do you think? And, and so they come up with this plan, this test. And it was really simple. There's a special feast coming up, this two-day feast, and David would be expected to be at. And so the plan was David's going to miss it. And depending on Saul's response, they'd know if he's out to kill him or not. So if Saul gets angry that David's absent and says, where is he? Right? It would show, yeah, his, his plans are being foiled. He's angry that he can't kill David. But if Saul didn't seem to care or notice that David was gone, then okay, all's good and well. Come back home, David. So that was the plan. So, so Jonathan tells David, go stay hidden in the field, and I'm going to go to the feast. Okay, so that's the plan. That's the first part of the plan. But then, when it gets a bit confusing, they decide to discuss how the results of the test are going to be conveyed. They have the plan. Okay, is Saul still mad? We've got to figure that out. 
But second, we've got to figure out how I'm going to tell you if he's still mad or not. So, so they discuss how are they going to relay the results of the test. In other words, how is Jonathan going to let David know whether he was going to be sought by the king or not, if Saul was mad or not? If, in fact, Saul was out to kill David, Jonathan could, couldn't just go and say, oh, hey, hey, Dad, I'm going to meet with David. Right? Saul has messengers all over, so he couldn't have just a, a secret meeting with David. So he has to have a way to convey, you've got to get away from here. So that, that's part of the plan. They have a plan to, to convey the results of the first test, which involved shooting arrows, archery practice. So Jonathan would go out once, once he had determined the, the state of his dad. He'd take a young boy out to fetch his arrows, and he would shoot three arrows towards the, the hiding place of David. And Jonathan was going to communicate to David what he found out by, by someone of a secret code to the boy. The boy would have no idea, but the boy wouldn't, wouldn't be aware of anything fishy going on. And so Jonathan, if he's not in danger, if everything's fine, Jonathan's going to shoot his arrows, and as the boy goes, he's going to tell the boy, you've gone too far. Come back. The arrows are on this side of you. But, so that's if you're not in danger, that's what he's going to tell the boy. But if, if you're in danger, David... I'm going to shoot the arrows, and as the boy's going, I'm going to say, no, no, keep going. You've got to keep going farther and farther. Basically, I mean, if you think about it, Jonathan's message to the boy is the message to David. Either come back, everything's okay, or keep going. Run away, you are in danger. <coughs> so that's the plan. <coughs> now what I want to do is I want to pick up reading in verse 24, just, just so you, you <coughs> read how this plan plays out. So look at chapter 20, verse 24. So David hid himself in the field. They got the plane. They got the, the communication piece in play. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something's happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day... The day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, Son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. In other words, he, he asked if he could go. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brothers commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go and see my brothers. For this reason, Father, he hasn't come to your table. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, and he ate no food on the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field to the appointment with David and with the little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called out after the boy, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows, and he came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. 
And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said, and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, and he fell on, on his face to the ground, and he bowed three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and he departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Well, as we come to the end, I want to show you the role of covenant that played here. And, and, and then we'll, we'll close with two applications. But, but, but notice the way that, that covenant functions between Jonathan and David in this chapter. First, look at verse 8 of chapter 20. Verse 8, David refers back to the covenant that Jonathan made him back all the way in, in 18, verse 3. Remember there in chapter 18, the covenant, so, so Jonathan makes this covenant with him. And the covenant is followed by him giving David all his royal attire. That was back in 18, verse 3. So, so this, this covenant, it's not just about a pact between two friends. That's, it's more than that. The covenant relationship was about much more than simply friendship. Ultimately, this covenant, ultimately it was about who would serve whom in the kingdom. That's what it's about. It's about who is going to have the allegiance of whom? Who's going to serve whom? And so Jonathan, as the prince, as the one with official royal authority... He uses that authority to make a covenant with David. And he promises to David that he will be subject to him. I'm going to serve you. You are the one with authority. Look look at verse 13 uh, there of chapter 20. Verse 13, listen to to Jonathan's words to David. Listen listen to the words of, of the one that deserves the throne to the one who he's recognizing is actually going to get the throne. He says, May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as much as his own soul. And so here we see Jonathan, what, what he's communicating is that he knows David's going to be king, and he wants David to be king. And so Jonathan is aligning himself with David. That's what he's doing. He's aligning himself with David. He's declaring his allegiance. He even prays that the Lord would take vengeance on David's enemies, which, by the way, is Saul. Right? Who's his enemy? It's Saul. And so he's, he's praying that the Lord would take vengeance on his enemies. And so in this covenant, Jonathan is showing his commitment to the kingdom of God. He asks only one thing. David, remember me. Remember me when you become king. Don't, don't kill me when the Lord judges my dad. Remember my, my offspring. Remember them forever, which there's a powerful story later when this does happen with a man named Mephibosheth. But, but in verse 41, we see this, what appears to be this final farewell between these two. It would be the, the second to last. There would be one more brief meeting before Jonathan would, would die. He would die fighting with his father, in battle with his father. But this farewell, we see the covenant at work one last time. Verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And, and he rose and he departed, and Jonathan went into the city, so they separate ways. And, and I just want to think about what Jonathan says as they departed. It seems a little out of place, doesn't it? Go in peace. Peace probably isn't how one would describe David's emotions as he's getting ready to run for his life again. Right? Go in peace? Peace probably isn't what you would think Jonathan should be sending David away with. Godspeed, success, luck, 
Any, any of those, but, but peace, go in peace. And yet peace is exactly what Jonathan says to David, go in peace. One commentator writes, it's as if Jonathan urges, go in peace because there's peace in this, this one item. In this one relation of ours, there is safety, there's peace. There's an anchor here for you, David. This is the one relation that holds fast when all else may be in flux and be in confusion. There's one area of peace, David. As you run, go in peace knowing that there's one area where peace is established and will reign forever, and that's between you and me. Jonathan urges David to go in peace because Jonathan wants David to know that whatever happens, whatever comes, he has an ally in Jonathan. He has a covenant, a faithful friend, an ally whose allegiance goes much deeper than just between two young men. It's an allegiance that's grounded in a commitment to the Lord himself. Jonathan's faithfulness to the Lord is what guarantees his commitment to David because he knows the Lord is committed to David. And so he's committed to David because he's committed to the Lord. David doesn't have to fear if he runs away. He doesn't have to fear Jonathan rising to power and betraying him and joining forces with King Saul against him. Jonathan has committed to being on the Lord's side, which in this case means being on David's side, which leads us to our final, final application. And actually, there's two, two final applications. The first one, choosing sides. I think in the, these chapters, broadly, but especially in, in verse 20, or chapter 20, we see that a decision has to be made. Right? Jonathan has to choose sides, doesn't he? He has to choose, will he align himself with his father? Or will he align himself with David? He can't wait for it. He can't be on both teams. He has to choose. And just like David forced Jonathan to choose, I think the application for us is that the same dynamic is at work in David's greater son. In Jesus, just like David was a fork in the road for Jonathan, right? So, so he comes, Jonathan comes to David. He either has to be for him or against him. He's got to choose. So too is Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right? He, he's, a, he's a fork in the road. And so I, I think the principle we see is, is you've got to choose sides. And I, I'm thinking of you specifically if you're not a Christian this morning. You have to make a decision at Jesus Christ. You've got to go one way or the other. You can't waver. You can't be on both teams. You're either for him or against him. And so non-Christian, I, I would urge you to follow the example of Jonathan and follow the Lord's anointed. Because to choose against Jesus is to choose against the Lord himself. You can't love Jesus and hate God. You can't love God and hate Jesus. So if you want to follow Jesus, you want to love Jesus, you want to love God, you do so through following Jesus. And so non-Christian, you've got to choose. I would urge you, follow Jesus. He's the Lord's anointed. He's the one that will lead you and give you victory and peace. Another final application. I think we see in this relationship between David and Jonathan, we see a relationship that brings peace and alters allegiances. A relationship that brings peace and alters allegiances. Or a covenant that brings peace and alters allegiances. If you're here, you're a Christian, I think we see in this relationship something of the relationship between Christ and his people. And so, so I think that, that the covenant between Christ and his people is on display in the relationship between David and Jonathan. And here's the two ways that I'll mention that. First, in the midst of chaos, there's peace. I think we see peace. I think the follower of Christ, the relationship with Christ, gives the Christian peace. And biblical peace never assumes that there are no trials or difficulties. Did you know that? Biblical peace never assumes there's no trials or difficulties or storms. The Christian does not have peace because things are peaceful. 
He has peace because Christ has pledged his friendship to him. That's your source of peace, not your circumstances. Peace comes because you have a friend, a covenant friend. And we can't forget that Christ himself did more than simply verbalize his covenant commitment, didn't he? He didn't say, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. He sealed it. He sealed it with his own blood. Do you remember? This this is my own blood of the new covenant shed for, for you, my friends. Christian, you can have peace because Christ has died and purchased your peace with God through his blood. And so you can go in peace no matter what awaits you outside that door. What awaits you in the next tragedy, the next death, the next diagnosis, the next surgery? You can have peace because you have Christ. You have peace with God because Christ has purchased it with his own blood. That's your anchor. That's your shelter. That's your peace. But it's not just the relationship that brings peace. It also alters allegiances. We can't miss that Jonathan's relationship with David altered his allegiances, didn't it? He couldn't, be, he couldn't be loyal to his father and David. So his relationship with David required him to forsake his father. And no Christian is promised freedom from having to forsake father and mother and following Christ. But the relationship with Christ ought to be our primary concern, ought to be our allegiance. He is our faithful friend who shed his blood for us. Let's let's close. Let's pray as we close.